So the Buddha says with this noble morality, the keeping of the precepts, this noble guarding of the senses, this noble mindfulness, and this no, noble contentment with little, it makes it possible to do the work of a recluse. The work of a recluse is, obviously from what follows, meditation practice. The training of the mind. Uh, people who know nothing about the spiritual path ask me, you know, will you teach meditation? Why meditate? I say, you go to the gym. I mean, you lift those weights, you put them right back where they were, or you didn't accomplish anything. <laughs> it's the same thing. You're working your mind. And you're strengthening your mind. But you're also exploring. You're exploring yourself and reality in general. So the work of the recluse is to basically train the mind and use the trained mind to investigate reality. So then it says, upon returning from alms round, having eaten the midday meal, one resorts to a secluded dwelling, the forest, the root of a tree, uh, a hillside cave, a charnel ground, the open air, a heap of straw. All of these are obviously suitable places to meditate. What they have in common is they're a place where you won't be bothered. Uh, you want to go meditate someplace where, you know, you're not going to be bothered. There's not too much noise, not too much distraction, things like that. Then one sits down cross-legged, holds one's body erect, and sets up mindfulness before oneself. Cross-legged is great if you can do it. We have these evil things called chairs that have destroyed our ability to sit cross-legged. So sit in a comfortable, upright posture. It needs to be comfortable because if, if it's uncomfortable, there will be aversion in the mind, and this will interfere with your meditation practice. And if it's upright, it helps keep you awake. If it's too comfortable, yeah, you fall asleep. So um, moderately comfortable, upright posture. And then it says, one puts one's attention at the mukta. The mukta would be literally mouth, but I don't think it means pie hole. I think it means at the opening of the nostrils. When we talk about the mouth of a cave, right, the opening of a cave, so I think what it's saying is put your attention at the nostrils. It certainly seems that attention at the nostrils works better for learning jhanas simply because it's more subtle. If you can successfully pay attention to a more subtle sensation, you have more concentration, and this is what the jhanas are about. But before you get to the jhanas, you need to abandon the five hindrances, the five states of mind that hinder progress on the spiritual path. Usually given as something like either covetousness or sensual desire. You find both of those words used in different places in the suttas. It's the wanting aspect of the mind. And then we find anger and ill will, which is the not wanting aspect of the mind. Sloth and torpor, too little energy, restlessness and remorse, too much energy, and doubt. So the first one, the wanting aspect, it can be covetousness, wanting something that someone else possesses. But 
more hindering I find is just wanting in general, wanting sense pleasures. Um, the Buddha compares the wanting mind to the one that's in debt. If you're in debt, you have to continually work to pay off the debt. You can't simply phone up a bank and say, well, I'm going to Hawaii this month, so uh, I won't be paying my mortgage. They don't like that. They take your house away from you. All right? You've got to continually work. It's the same with sense pleasures. No sense pleasure is ultimately satisfying. You don't eat some really, really good ice cream and go, wow, that was so good, I never have to eat ice cream again. Or you see a brilliant sunset and go, oh, that's wonderful, I never need to look at another sunset. No, you're back out there eating ice cream and watching sunsets the next day. All right, so sense pleasures don't lead to fulfillment other than very short term. They lead to short-term fulfillment and long-term longing, right? Wanting more. And so this is why it's like being in debt. Ill will and hatred is like being physically ill. If you're physically ill, you don't feel well, you can't think straight, you're hot, you can't do what you want to do. And all of that applies to ill will and hatred. One of the antidotes to ill will and hatred is recognizing the ownership of action. Ever do anything when you are angry and it wasn't the wisest thing to do? Yeah. So if you're caught in ill will and hatred, you've actually put yourself in a position where you're somewhat powerless to do the wisest thing. Um, sloth and torpor. Uh, sloth in the body, torpor in the mind. I've seen it, laziness and lassitude, uh, laziness and drowsiness. It's the falling asleep thing. Or just like being too lazy to meditate thing. Right? Or you're meditating and you get this fantasy going and uh, the fantasy's more interesting than my breath. I'll just go with the fantasy. Right? Restlessness and worry is how it's usually translated, but actually looking at the words restlessness and remorse is actually more accurate. So this would be either physical restlessness or mental restlessness. And then the remorse would be over something you did in the past and now it's come up and it's worrying you. And then doubt. There are a number of instances of doubt described in the literature. Doubt about the Buddha. Did he really know what he was talking about? Doubt about the Dhamma, is this really the truth? Doubt about the Sangha, anybody else actually get enlightened? Doubt about the teachings, the teacher, and the worst doubt of all, doubt about yourself. I can't do this, it's too hard. Well, yeah, it's hard. If it were easy, we'd all gotten enlightened a long time ago, right? It's definitely hard. But it's worth the journey. That's the thing to keep in mind. It would be really nice if you get fully awakened. But if you don't, and you really put your effort into it, I can pretty much guarantee you, you will have a better life than if you go do anything else. It just seems to work like that. Now, for overcoming the hindrances, the best strategy I've found for sense desire is look at the flaws in whatever I'm desiring. Right? If it's another person, uh, they're not perfect. And if they are, they ain't going to be interested in me. Right? Okay. Mr. and Ms. Wright got married a long time ago. We're left with the dregs. 
All right, so um, if it's a thing, it's either going to break or wear out or you're going to have to up your insurance policy or, or, you know, okay. But really look and see the flaws in whatever it is that's captured your attention. You know, it's not going to stay the same. For ill will and hatred, like I mentioned, uh, it's not a place of power. The best antidote for ill will and hatred is metta practice, loving-kindness meditation. Metta is a really powerful practice. It's a very transformative practice. So if you find yourself meditating away and suddenly ill will and hatred or anger comes up, drop whatever technique you were doing and switch to doing metta practice. You don't have to do it for the person you're angry at, right? You can do it for yourself. You can do it for the Dalai Lama. You can do it for your best friend, okay? Just get your mind off the ill will and hatred into metta. For sloth and torpor, uh, make sure you're getting enough sleep. Interesting, I teach a residential retreat. 40% of the students come into the first interview complaining about being sleepy. They say, yeah, it takes three or four days. Second interview, yeah, nobody's coming in complaining about being sleepy. We lead such insanely busy lives. And so when you finally sit down to meditate, your body goes, oh, finally, he stopped. I'm going to get some sleep. And you fall asleep. All right? So make sure you get enough sleep. I mean, it's important. And the laziness... We're all going to die. Every single one of us is going to wind up dead. And if you're busy watching cat videos on YouTube, you're probably not going to get to the end of your life laying there on your deathbed going, I didn't watch enough cat videos on YouTube. All right? You've got a limited amount of time here. You don't know how much, but I can guarantee you it's limited. What are you going to do with it? Right? You watch cat videos. I've watched some. They were funny. Sometimes you just need to watch a cat video or ten. But keeping death over your shoulder, as Don Juan put it, can really help with the laziness on the spiritual path. You only got a limited amount of time. And actually, um, at least from a physical standpoint, things are probably going to go downhill from here. I don't see anybody here looks like they're in their teens. So, yeah, it's probably going to go downhill. So, yeah, the spiritual path is going to make that downhill ride a lot more fun. Okay, so, yeah. Things like this can be helpful for overcoming the laziness. Uh, Restlessness and remorse. Interestingly enough, one of the things that can help with the sleepiness is go for some Vigorous exercise. Get your energy up. One of the things that can help with restlessness is go for some vigorous exercise. Burn off the excess energy. So it's actually a a very useful thing to do. Even on a retreat. Okay? You know, sort of get the sense of, yeah, you're just moving around really slowly. But that actually might be counterproductive if you're dealing with too much or too little energy. And it might be actually a good idea to go for a vigorous walk. The remorse. The best thing to do for dealing with remorse is keep the precepts. Then your actions aren't such that you have anything to be remorseful over. 
All right? If you have stuff from the past that you're feeling remorse about, make amends. If you can't make it to the person that you need to make the amends to, make amends to somebody. And then let it go. You can't change the past. One of the wisest things I ever heard was forgiveness means giving up all hope of ever having a better past. Right? So let it go. Right? And then doubt. One of the things that's really helpful for overcoming doubt is keeping the precepts. Right? This is the practice. You keep the precepts. This is make your life better. You can find stuff in the suttas where, yeah, you don't keep the precepts, you're going to hell. You can find that in all religions. But really, I think what the Buddha was teaching was, if you keep the precepts, this is actually the most effective way to live. This is what makes your life go well. It's not about doing bad things and getting away from getting away with it. It's about realizing that if you do things that enable you to act in harmony, it just works a lot better. Integrity. Integration. Right? Integrate yourself into the the larger world by acting in harmony with the way things are. And the precepts are ways, ideas, teachings to help you act in harmony. The other things for overcoming doubt are study. Ask questions. Right? If, you've got, if you've got questions and you've got some so-called spiritual teacher, ask them questions. Ask them the hard questions. Right? This is actually really important. Study is useful. There's all sorts of ways to do it. I prefer studying the suttas. You know, I wanted to know what the Buddha was talking about. But there are lots of other ways to study. There's some really brilliant books out there right now. Stuff by Analio. Uh, Joseph Goldstein's got a really brilliant book on mindfulness. Um, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of really good stuff. If you're looking for books to read, I have a reading list on my website, you know. But there's plenty to read. Uh, so study and ask questions. If you pay attention to the distractions when you're meditating, almost every distraction will fall into one of these categories. You're wanting something, you're not wanting something, your energy's too low, your energy's too high, or there's some sort of doubt going on. In order to generate a mind that's most effective for gaining insight into the nature of reality, you need to generate some indistractability, some concentration. In order to do that, you need to set aside the hindrances. Now, what's talked about in the later commentaries for entering the jhanas, which are right concentration according to multiple definitions in the suttas, the thing that you need to do is generate access concentration. Access concentration is defined as being fully with the object of meditation. And if there are thoughts in the background, they're in the background. They're wispy and not pulling you off into distraction. All right? If you overcome the hindrances, that's where you'll be. The hindrances are those distracting thoughts. And the key thing for doing it is to recognize when you've become distracted. And then it's often helpful to label it. Planning, wanting, angry, upset, 
nonsense, doubt, whatever it is. And then very important, relax and bring your attention back to your breathing. All right? So the strategy isn't force yourself to stay with the breath or the metta or whatever practice you're doing, body scan. The strategy is to recognize as soon as possible when you've gotten distracted. Label the distraction. Relax. The relax is really important. And bring your attention back to your meditation object. You do that enough, and eventually the mind settles in. The hindrances are gone. And now you're ready for some even deeper practice. But before I talk about the deeper practice, I'll see, are there any questions about the hindrances? Okay. Um, I'll do the jhanas, then we can take a break. So, secluded from sense desire, secluded from unwholesome states, one enters and remains in the first jhana, which is with vitaka and vichara, and is filled with piti and sukha, born of seclusion. All right, so secluded from sense desire, secluded from unwholesome states of mind means the abandoning of the hindrances. Then one enters and remains in the first jhana, which is with vitaka and vichara. These words are translated in the later commentary or understood in the later commentary to mean initial and sustained attention to the meditation object. It's very true you do need initial and sustained attention to meditation object to do any kind of meditation effectively. But it's not what the words vitaka and vichara meant to the Buddha. Never. Vitaka means thinking and vichara means something like examining or turning over in your mind. Um, it originally meant wandering around. So you know, taking an idea and wandering around it, examining it, looking at it. But the phrase vitaka and vichara actually is a, an example of synonymous parallelism. Okay? Pali has this thing of, if you want to emphasize something, you say it multiple times using different words. What follows what I just quoted to you is that one drenches deep, saturates and suffuses one's body with the rapture and happiness born of seclusion. So there is no part of one's body not filled with rapture and happiness. Drench, deep, saturate, and suffuse is synonymous parallelism. It's just similar words to give emphasis. Vitaka and vichara could probably most accurately be translated as thinking and more thinking. Right? Basically what it's saying is that background wispy thoughts you had at access concentration don't go away in the first jhana. They're not thoughts of, oh, when I get out of here I'm going to get some ice cream. Or next week when I'm in Hawaii. Or I wish my boss hadn't, you know, all right? It's not those kind of thoughts. It's the, oh, this is good. Is this what he's talking about? Could this be access? Yeah, stay with the breath. Come on, stay with the breath. 
you know, the, the sort of cheerleading, well, it's not quite a cheer, whisper leading in the background, right, to sort of direct what's going on with your practice. That's there at access concentration. Possibly it might fade out for a few seconds, a minute or two. That's great. It just says you're deeper. And it's still there in the first jhana. Right? There, there's just this, okay, all right, this is good. Uh, yeah, I, I like this. All right? As opposed to, yeah, when I get to Hawaii. So the first jhana is a state where the thinking hasn't dropped out completely, and yet it's filled with piti and sukha. Piti is often translated as rapture. I've seen it translated as euphoria, ecstasy, delight. The best English word I know is glee. It's an excited physical release of energy. It has a very physical component. It can make your hair stand on end, make you sit up really straight, can make you vibrate. It might show up as heat, uh, maybe even like so strong it's a hot flash. All right. And sukha is joy or happiness. So PT is primarily physical and sukha is emotional. Now the PT has uh, an emotional component, but it's got enough energy with it that you will experience it primarily as a physical experience. So how do you get from, okay, I'm at access concentration, I'm fully with, for example, the breath, where, how do I get to PT and Sukha? That seems like, right, okay. Once you've gotten to access concentration, you're fully with the object of meditation, and if their thoughts are in the background, not pulling you into a distraction, stay there for a while. And after you've been there 5, 10, 15 minutes, let go of the attention on the breathing or the metta or the body scan and put your full attention on a pleasant sensation. Now you might be wondering, what pleasant sensation? See that smile on this guy's face? It's helpful if you smile when you meditate. If you smile when you meditate, even if it's a fake smile, by the time you get to access concentration, the smile will feel genuine. It won't be a big grin. It'll be a little Buddha smile. That's okay. All right? Drop the attention on the breathing, having been at access concentration long enough, 5, 10, 15 minutes, and put your attention on the pleasantness of the smile. Now, the smile works really well for those for whom it works. Unfortunately, it seems to work for only about 25% of the students I've worked with. The most common place people find a pleasant sensation is in the hands, a sort of warm, tingly glow. So, drop the attention on your breathing and put your attention on the pleasantness of the pleasant feeling in your hands. If you're doing metta, pleasant feeling often in the heart center. Drop the attention on the phrases or the feeling and put your attention on enjoying the pleasant sensation in the center of your chest. Right? 
maybe the third eye feels pleasant, maybe the top of the head, the shoulders, the soles of your feet, actually you name a body part. And I've worked with some student who found pleasure in that body part, was able to put their attention on it, and ride it into the first jhana. So, you're at access, been there long enough, shift your attention to the pleasant sensation. Now comes the really, really difficult part. Do nothing else. Just enjoy the pleasant sensation. If you can enjoy the pleasant sensation without distraction, it will begin to grow stronger on its own. You're just sitting there enjoying it and it gets a little stronger. And if you don't do anything, eventually it'll get a little stronger and a little more and a little more until it actually blasts off and turns into this release of pleasant physical energy accompanied by joy and happiness, piti and sukha. When that occurs, that's the first jhana. Put your attention on the experience of piti and sukha. Actually, when it first occurs, you probably can't distinguish the piti from the sukha. So put your attention on the experience of piti sukha. All right? And that is now the object. You let go of the breath or the metta or everything else back when you shifted to the pleasant sensation. And you don't go back to the breathing. You stay on the pleasant sensation until it converts itself into piti sukha. And now you stay focused on the piti sukha experience. That's the object of meditation. Some people get the piti sukha experience kind of mild. It's definitely there, but yeah, not a big deal. Some people get it so strong, blows the top of their head off. Right? It's just like over the top, way too much. The length of time you would want to stay in the first jhana is inversely proportional to the strength of the piti sukha experience. In other words, if it's really strong, you probably don't want to stay there very long. It's sort of like you stuck your finger in the electrical socket. Eh, I think that's long enough, right? And if it's mild, yeah, it's pretty pleasant. Yeah, you can hang out there for, oh, five, ten minutes. Now, it says that one drenches deep, saturates, and suffuses one's body with the piti and sukha. That's an advanced practice, right? You want to get in and you want to sustain and you want to get in multiple times and be able to sustain. And when you do, you'll find it's probably sort of the upper torso, neck and head is where it, the PT Sukha seems to be happening. Maybe your whole spine is involved, but maybe not into your extremities. To get it everywhere after you've gotten good at getting it, then it's fairly simple. Put your attention where it feels the strongest. Move your attention like down into an arm and then back to where it felt strong. And you'll find the PT Sukha sort of moves. And then the other arm and then the rest of the torso and one leg and the other leg. But in advanced practice, you've got to get good at getting it and sustaining it before you want to try that. We do have a simile the simile gives us a hint of what soap was like at the time of the Buddha. You didn't go to the Safeway and buy a bar of soap, right? You got your skilled bath attendant or his apprentice to take a metal basin, pour in the right amount of soap flakes, the right amount of water, and mix the soap flakes and water together until you have one homogeneous ball of soap. The mixing of the soap flakes and water 
is very similar to the energetic release of the Piti Sukha experience. Mixing soap flakes and water is not something you go, oh, that's so calm, right? Okay, so the same thing for the Piti Sukha experience. Although we talk about samadhi leading to calm, the first instance, the first jhana, is not a calm experience. It's quite an energetic experience. So you would stay there, as I said, uh, depending on how strong it is. If it's really strong, it might be brief, 20, 30 seconds. If it's really quite mild and, yeah, you like being there, you might stay five or ten minutes. When you want to move on to the second jhana, the trick is to take a deep breath and really let the energy out. Right? So you got the PT in here all it's like <gasps> and then when you let the energy out, things calm down. This gives you the inner tranquility that's spoken of. And hopefully at either then or shortly thereafter you get the unification of mind. It says with the fading away with the subsiding of the vitaka vichara, the thinking and more thinking, by gaining inner tranquility and unification of mind, one enters and remains in the second jhana, where there's no vitaka vichara, and contains rapture and happiness born of concentration. So you bring the energy down, this gives you the inner tranquility, and now the object is the sukha, the PT energy has come down to where it's pretty much in the background. First jhana, PT predominates, sukha's in the background. Take the deep breath, they both calm down, but now the PT is more like rocking or swaying, and what's really prominent is the feeling of joy, happiness, right? The sukha. So you put your attention on the sukha. So your object of meditation is an emotion. This is different from the breath or the body scan, but not that different from metta practice if you're focused on the feeling of metta. Now you're focused on the feeling of joy or happiness. Okay? And you can stay a long time in this place. Uh, but the first jhana, five, ten minutes is probably enough. Just a little too much energy. You calm it down and now you're focused on sukha. And yeah, you can stay yeah, 10, 15 minutes, even longer if you want. The mind needs to become unified around the experience of sukha. Right? So remember there was the background wispy thinking in the first jhana. As that fades out, as it subsides, the mind really gets unified around the sense of happiness. And you're just happy. It's, well, it's like it's your birthday and your friend gives you a present and you open, oh, wow, he's wanted one of these. This is so good. That kind of happiness. But it's not being generated from an external object. It's just your concentrated mind generating happiness. Now, this is actually quite interesting. You have happiness inside of you. It doesn't come in from the outside. What comes in from the outside is a trigger. Happiness is a neurological function. It's a, it's a pathway in the brain. You just have to light up that pathway. 
Mostly we don't know how to light it up because, well, we need the nice birthday present or something else, right? And then we can light it up. You can train yourself to light it up with just concentration. As Ayakima said, this is our natural birthright. This is what the mind is really like if you stop doing all the stuff that gets in the way. The, the normal mind, the unruffled mind is actually a very happy mind. So you get quiet enough, you get indistractable enough because that's what concentration really is such that you're just experiencing the mind as it is yeah it's full of happiness and joy right this is what's inside of you pretty nice place to hang out so one drenches deep saturates and suffuses one's body with the rapture and happiness born of concentration so there's no part of one's body not filled with rapture and happiness as the numbers go up, the body sensation of the jhanas goes down. So first jhana, head, second jhana, more like the heart. Like there's this well of happiness in your heart, a spring, and it's just overflowing with happiness, and it's just coming out. This is very much what the second jhana simile is like. Imagine a lake with no streams coming in from the east, west, north, or south, no showers of rain, and yet at the bottom of the lake there's a spring of cool, clear water. The cool, clear water totally permeates the lake, totally fills the lake, so there is no part of that lake not touched by the cool, clear water from the spring. Okay. In the same way, the happiness is coming from this wellspring of your heart and just filling you. This is an absolutely brilliant simile. I had learned the second jhana from Ayakema without hearing the simile. And a year later, I went on a longer retreat with her, and she talked about this discourse I gave this morning. It took her 25 days to get through it. I, I got through it in, what, about 35 minutes. So she went into more detail. But um, she, gave, she read out the simile, and I was just blown away by how accurate it was. And when she left the room, I went running after her. Ayakema, Ayakema, it's just like that. It's just like that. The spring of happiness just flowing up. And you're just focused on it and being really happy. So you hang out there 10 or 15 minutes, and then you can move on to the third jhana. With the fading away of rapture, remaining imperturbable, mindful, and clearly aware, one enters and remains in the third jhana, of which the noble ones declare, happy is one who is equanimous and mindful. And one experiences happiness with the body. All right, so the PT, the physical component, is all gone at the third jhana. Uh, if you hang out in the second jhana long enough, the rocking, swaying, which is the remnants of the PT, will just fade out on its own. But if you want to make the move yourself, again, you can take a nice deep breath, let the energy out, and hopefully the PT's all gone. When it goes, the happiness, joy aspect of sukha changes more to contentment, to wishlessness, to a state of satisfaction so complete that if Mick Jagger had been practicing the third jhana, he wouldn't be able to sing that song. Right? You got satisfaction. 
Right? And that's the focus of your attention. That's your object of meditation, is this experience of satisfaction. Uh, it's a wishless state. It's, it's, yeah, it's really contented. You don't want anything. It's a great place to hang out. People who get skilled at the first four jhanas often say they prefer the third jhana just because of the wishlessness. Um, again, one drenches deep, saturates and suffuses one's body. Uh, it's a very still place. The suffusing, again, there's a dropping down. Maybe the third jhana's at the belly. And you want to suffuse, you put your attention there, you move your attention. You're not trying to move the contentment, you move your attention and the contentment will follow on its own. And you're in just a very, very contented state. Just hanging out, just being wishless. The simile is of a lotus pond with lotuses coming up out of the mud but not above the surface of the water. They're completely filled with water. This is a very still picture. You don't have lotuses waving in the breeze or bobbing up and down on the water. They're underwater. It also has a sense of isolation. You know, you're underwater. You've let go of what was up there. The third jhana, you're beginning to get a sense of pulling away from the outer world. And it's very still without the piti there. You're just sitting there being contented and that's all that's happening. It, the contentment is going on, but there's no sense of motion or anything like that. And then with the passing beyond pleasure and pain, the previous disappearance of joy and of gladness and sadness, one enters and remains in the fourth jhana a state beyond pleasure and pain that contains mindfulness fully purified by equanimity. All right, so don't make the mistake of thinking there was pain or sadness in the previous jhanas. What it's pointing to is you're going for a state of neutrality, an emotionally neutral state, a state of equanimity. So no pleasure, no pain. There was pleasure in the first three jhanas, right? First one, you got all the rapture and happiness, big grin on your face, people see your teeth, right? Second jhana, happiness, big grin, no teeth. Third jhana, contentment, Buddha smile. It's, being content is pleasant, right? Fourth jhana, the pleasure is gone. And there was, of course, joy in the first two jhanas, gladness, but that's gone also. But not to the negative. It's all very neutral here. The way to make the move is get in touch with the pleasure of the third jhana, that wispy Buddha smile of pleasure, of contentment, and let it go. Hopefully when you do that, there's a sense of things starting to drop down. Go with the sense of dropping down and ride it all the way to the bottom. The dropping might last several minutes, might only last 20, 30 seconds, but if you let it drop all the way down till it comes to rest, shift your attention to quiet stillness. Usually the fourth jhana is talked about as the jhana of equanimity. But if I say focus on equanimity, that's like, uh, how do you do that? But if I say focus on quiet stillness, if you focus on quiet stillness 
and you're in the fourth jhana, you will be focused on equanimity. So as a skillful means, focus on quiet stillness. It's, it's a state of mindfulness fully purified by equanimity. So the best kind of mindfulness is equanimous mindfulness. You can, you can be in the present moment and be all exuberant about it, right? But your exuberance might get in the way of seeing what's actually going on at the deepest level. You can be focused on the present moment and be sad and upset about it, but that also might get in the way of you seeing what's really going on. So the, the best kind of mindfulness is mindfulness fully purified by equanimity. That's what we're after in the fourth jhana. Now, it says that one sits suffusing one's body with a pure, bright mind, so there is no part of one's body not suffused by the pure, bright mind. When I first heard that, it was like, pure, okay, I get that, but bright? My experience of the fourth jhana was dark. You know, why are they saying bright when I'm just like looking at the inside of a coal cellar with the light turned off? It's dark. Uh, there's a simile. Imagine a man covered from the head down by a white sheet so that there is no part of his body not suffused by the white sheet. Okay, so the covered, that's the sense of isolation. Yeah, I get a, a definitely more of a sense of isolation in the fourth jhana than the third. But why white? Why not a black sheet? I didn't know. So I went to Ayakema, I asked her about it. She said, describe the fourth jhana, describe the fourth jhana. She says, that's it. Yeah, don't worry about it. Okay. So for the next 16 years, I had to leave it in the I don't know category. I assume all of you are very aware that one of the most important things to bring on the spiritual path is comfort with I don't know. Because a lot of times we don't know. Yeah, And if you're not comfortable with I know, don't know, you'll pretend that you know and just get some bad information. If you don't know, it's important to know you don't know and be comfortable with it. All right. So, I don't know why they're saying bright white. So for 16 years, I don't know. And then I went on retreat with the Venerable Pau Ak, uh, who's a jhana master from southern Burma. This was at the Forest Refuge back in Barrie, Massachusetts. Was there for a month. He teaches the jhanas as described in the Visuddhimagga. Now, what I'm giving you is the jhanas as described in the suttas, since obviously it's coming from a sutta. There are eight different states described in the Visuddhimagga. All right. Now, there are certainly people you can go to and say, "Is there any difference between the sutta jhanas and the Visuddhimagga jhanas?" And they'll tell you, "No." All right. And I'm telling you, there is a difference. You're on your own to figure out what's going on, all right? You ask me, I'm going to tell you there are eight different states. In fact, I can point out 38 different states to get the name Jhana, all right? Um, But I'll leave that to my website, all right? Uh, But what Pawak teaches is the Vasudhimaga Jhanas. And to get to his Jhanas, you've got to get supremely concentrated. You've got to get so concentrated you see a circle of light. And then you've got to absorb into the circle of light. I only had a month. I'd already been warned it takes six months to get there. Right? So I knew I wasn't going to get there. But I was curious to see what he was teaching. And what happened was he gave us this counting method for the breath. He teaches mindfulness of breathing as the access method. And he says, 
instead of counting one on the in-breath, one on the out-breath or anything like that, he said, breathe in, breathe out, and count in the gap between the out and the next in. So one, breathe in, breathe out, two. And you only go to eight. If you get to eight, start again at one. If you get lost, start again at one. And it actually turns out to be in a very effective way to generate deep concentration. Right? Because you've got to stay with it and you've got to really pay attention to get the number in the gap. Otherwise, it starts getting towards the end of the out-breath. And you're like, you're losing it. Get it back in the gap. Right? Mostly, we get lost on the out-breath. Breathe in. You're there. You breathe out. And your mind goes out with the breath. Right? But getting that number in there, it'll get you concentrated. So Powell gives us this, says, let me know when you can do it for 30 minutes without getting lost. Okay, in a few days I could do it for 30 minutes without getting lost. I tell him, he says, good, do for three hours, four hours. That's the single sitting, right? Okay, so I'm going to sit in a chair for three or four hours. And what started happening is, you know, I'd, I would count for half an hour which he said to do, and then drop the counting and just stay with the breathing. So I count for half an hour, and then after another 20 minutes, half an hour, I would get this huge wave of PT come over me. I mean, I was violently shaking. I was a little afraid my head was going to pop off. It was that violent. It was not at all pleasant. Kind of scary. Luckily, it only lasts about 10 seconds, and then go away. So I go to my next interview with Powalk. I describe what's happening. I don't use the word PT. He says to me, that is gross PT, do not let that happen. <laughs> okay. All right, so maybe I shouldn't smile when I meditate. You know, that brings on the PT if I don't smile. So, okay. And if I didn't smile, kept a nice neutral expression, then the gross PT didn't show up. And I could sit there for three or four hours, you know, waiting to see the nimitta, the circle of light, Waiting, waiting, you know, nothing happening. I'd been warned, all right? So um, after a few days of doing this, you know, I just did my three or four hours, had a little timer set, you know. It's like, I'm going to smile. And I'd smile, and this huge wave of PT would come, and then it would disappear, and I would find myself in the second jhana. <coughs> Not Pau Auk's second jhana, but the second jhana as I learned it from Ayakema, as what's described in the suttas. Only I was profoundly in the second jhana. I was in so strongly that you know, I could even think and I wouldn't fall out of it. I mean, if I thought a lot, I probably would have. But, you know, it was like, wow, this is really strong. And, you know, it's just the happiness is not going away. I got a grin on my face big enough to break my face. And I didn't have to do any drench, steep, saturate, and suffuse. I had been picked up and dunked into a vat of happiness. It was out to here. And it was really, really strong and, yeah, really cool. It was like, wow. So, you know, I'm there like 10 minutes. It's like, wow, I wonder what the third John is like. Well, I couldn't get there. You see, the PT kept coming back. You know, I'd be sitting there grinning away and then... Let's go to the third jhana. Come on now. Take a deep breath. <laughs> stuck in the second jhana. Not a bad place to be stuck. Right. 
And then after, I don't know, 15, 20 minutes, it just sort of went over the edge and dropped down to a place of extreme contentment. Just really, really wishless, totally satisfied. No more PT. And very definitely third jhana. But again, more profound. Out to here, dunked in a vat of contentment. Well, what's the fourth jhana going to be like? All right, let go of the, the smile, the pleasure that I had there with the contentment. Let it go. <laughs> I could not stop smiling. I could not let the pleasure go. I was stuck in the third jhana. And after another five minutes or so, it just like goes over the edge and it drops. And oh, wow, does it drop. It drops down, 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 down. And when it settles, it's very clearly the fourth jhana. It's a place of extreme equanimity. It's a very much quiet stillness. And it's bright white. It's like if you were to go out in the middle of an open field and put a sheet over your head on a bright sunny day and open your eyes. Oh, oh. That's exactly the simile. That's the pure, bright mind that was being talked about. It dawned on me at that point that very clearly I had not been getting into the jhanas as deep as described in the suttas. I had been getting into them, but the depth of concentration was not sufficient to give me the bright field of view. That by staying in access concentration, not for five or ten minutes, but for three or four hours, I was getting so concentrated that when I triggered the jhanas, I got to number four exactly as described in the suttas. Which, when I thought about it, made perfect sense. The Buddha's monks and nuns would go on alms round and they would eat the midday meal, probably around 10 or 11 in the morning, and then they would go for the day's abiding. They'd go to the forest or a hut or something and meditate till it got dark. I don't think they were doing 45 minutes sitting, 45 minutes walking. These were people who grew up without chairs. And they sit down and they would meditate for hours. And they were getting so deeply concentrated that when they got to the fourth jhana, they were getting the bright white field. So clearly... I wasn't getting to the jhanas as described in the suttas before this, but I now had access to it if I stayed long enough in access concentration. What I found in the long run, though, was that uh, I couldn't do it at home. I just didn't have the three or four hours. I didn't, even when I had an hour, if I spent the whole hour in access concentration, it wasn't of the quality I was getting on retreat. But when I would go on retreat, you know, I could do longer sittings and I could get back there on a regular basis. The interesting thing, though, is that even though I wasn't getting the jhanas as deep as what was described in the suttas, I was getting the benefit from them which I'll talk about next after I answer any questions about the jhanas. So save your benefit questions and we'll talk about the jhanas as experiences. You are using the word uh, 
contentment and satisfaction. Did you mean them to mean the same, or did you, do you have a different... Contentment, satisfaction, wishlessness, all the same. Same. You're, you're happy with the way things are. You okay. don't want anything. Okay. Yeah. And you had that stage come after joy, right? Yes. You, so joy is first and second jhana and then contentment. Yes. Yeah. Um, so from, I followed you, it made sense from what you were saying. Uh, without hearing you today, I would have thought that contentment would lead to joy. Actually, the experience is that an overabundance of joyful energy leads to joy, leads to contentment. It's a calming down process. Mm -hmm. But yeah, one of the things about taking what's in the suttas and trying to understand the jhanas from just reading that is there's not a lot of detail there. Remember, we have the Buddha's sermons. We don't have his meditation instructions so much. We have a bit, but mostly it's a sermon he gave to a large group of people. We don't have the one-on-one -on -one instructions. And so, yeah, there wasn't a lot of detail there. But the way it works is you get yourself really excited, and then as you calm the excitement down, you pass from joy to contentment to quiet stillness. Thank you. Um, was it was a access concentration that was the first jhana? The access concentration comes before the jhanas. Before access, mm -hmm. okay. So it's enough concentration to give you access to the first jhana which gives you enough concentration to give you access to the second, which gives you enough for the third, etc. Okay. Um, so is it in the first jhana that you start to feel the energy that you are describing, the, the energy of joy that was in the first one? The energy Bodily. of joy is at the first one, yes. Yeah. And so I think you, you answered my question, but I wanted to make sure I understood properly because I've... So I've experienced this and then that first jhana and um, many times. But then I noticed that lately um, it goes away quickly. Mm -hmm. and, but it used to not. And um, I think I understood what I'm doing is I'm going back to my breath. Right. Yeah. The idea is to stay focused on the energetic, yeah. happy experience, and that will sustain it. If you go back to the breath, yeah, it goes away. Yeah. See, what happens is, um, so I haven't been meditating for more than a couple years, and so initially I think it was kind of the beginner finding myself into that state and just, wow, it's great, so I'm, I'm focusing on it, right? Right. <laughs> and so I could stay in it for a long time. And then lately I've been kind of more trained, I suppose, and just feeling I have to focus on my breath, right. and then it goes away. <laughs> yeah. The breath is the key. When you come home from work, you pull out your key, you open the door, you don't walk around with the key in your hand. You're not there fixing supper with the key in your hand. <laughs> You're not watching TV with the key in your hand. <laughs> I'm home. <laughs> right. So you use the key to get you to access concentration, and then you use the pleasure, that's the inside key, right, to get you into the door of the first jhana. You don't need your keys anymore, right? 
So you're what you should do if you're getting PT and Sukha and it's strong, stay there for a bit, take a deep <laughs> breath, calm it down, and now focus just on the emotion of happiness. And then I'll talk about what to do next after we do the questions. Okay. I guess you're going to talk next about the difference between concentration and the insight. feeling of happiness and the emotion of happiness. No, I'm, I'm using those the same. The oh. feeling of the emotion of happiness would be exactly right. Oh, okay. Right. Thank you. Uh, you described the gap um, at the exhalation. Mm -hmm. in, in my exhalations, there, there seems to be a, a, a slight resting place um, at the end of the exhalation and the beginning of the inhalation. But I understood that the gap was before that. Um, there, it's, it's, the in, it's what's there between the end of the out-breath and the beginning of the in-breath. Okay. Whatever words you want to throw in to describe it is fine, but okay. it's what's there in that spot. Okay, maybe that little resting spot. Uh -huh. um, and then when you describe concentrating on the, the joy or the pitta, and the, the, the sukha, is that how it's described? The sukha is the joy, the piti is the physical. Piti. Okay. Yeah. Um, but to, to concentrate on that, that, how do you concentrate without clinging or... Um, setting, I don't know, having some type of an expectation around it. Look at this. Look, look carefully. Don't, don't let your attention wander. Okay? Do you have joy or expectation or, or anything else around it? Okay, that's how you do it. <laughs> you just put your attention on it and don't let anything else happen. Um, I have two questions on the practice of jhana, and they're sort of interrelated. Um, the small experience I've had with jhana, we're spontaneous, and then, you know, they disappear, never to return for years. But, so I want to ask you, is it uh, true that it's advisable when you really want to develop it as a primary practice, that you really need to be within reach of a teacher and pretty much in a retreat situation as opposed to being immersed to people who come and ring your bell or do all sorts of things? Or it certainly is helpful to have a teacher around to yeah. you know, point out, oh, you need to move a little this way or a little more of that. It's helpful. There are people who learn the jhanas without a teacher, but it's a lot easier if you have a teacher. But it's almost essential to be in a retreat situation. Yes. If, for those of you who've been on retreat, you know you go on like a 10-day retreat, and about day four, everything settles down. Mm. Now you're ready to start learning the jhanas. When you're at home, how do you get that day four settled down? Yeah, really hard to do. So, yeah, going on a retreat is going to be very, very helpful for learning the jhanas. Uh, more helpful than having a teacher, but a teacher can be really helpful too. And once that your jhanas have stabilized maybe you're not quite a level four you're still a three but you're pretty stable and you got the hang of it uh is there any serious risk that you may regress and go back into you know the defilements or oh, all yeah, sorts yeah. of shits that you thought you left behind yeah the jhanas don't cure anything 
right? The jhanas give you a concentrated mind. Once you come out of the jhana, everything, everything that you left behind to get there is still, it doesn't have to come back, but it's still there and it might. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There, the jhanas are not a cure. Well, okay, long term. The jhanas are positive mental states. Neuroscience has discovered whatever mental state you make a habit of hanging out in is the state you're most likely to fall into at any point, right? So if you spend a lot of time in the jhanas, it's a lot of time in positive mental states, then you are programming yourself to more likely be in a positive mental state. But I'm guessing this is at least a five-year project. So. Five-year project before you start noticing, oh, I'm happier than I used to be. Okay? And then that's only going to be a little bit. But even then, you don't know whether it's the happiness or the insights or the fact... You know, it's just a long-term project. There's a question over here. I um, need you, please, if you could just reiterate or go over, how do you go between jhana number two and jhana number three? Okay. Yeah, I didn't lay that one out (laughs) to, I didn't lay it out in any sort of detail. Okay, so you're in jhana number two, you're focused on the joy. What you want to do is find the volume control on the joy and turn it down towards contentment. And at the same time, uh, Probably take a breath and let the energy out. And the third thing is, if you can remember an incident where you were contented and plucked the feeling of contentment out of it, like uh, you just ate the perfect meal, you didn't overeat, and you don't have to wash the dishes. You know, it's like that ah feeling. All right, so now you turn the volume down. As you exhale, there's the memory, there's the feeling of contentment. Grab the feeling of contentment. Now you're contented. Um, are you, have you heard of this phenomenon of AMSR, I think they call it? Uh, ASMR, Autonomic Sensory Midline Response or Meridian Response. Nope. Okay, I, then my question is moot. Uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, I was wondering if it had anything to do with this feeling no of PT idea. Yeah. Uh, that you're describing. I've never experienced anything. Even I have. I I don't understand all this China stuff at all. I've never experienced anything even close to that. So <laughs> I was wondering if I if something that I have experienced is similar. Uh, yeah, so. we should talk afterward and, and okay. maybe get a little more detail. For most Westerners to get to access concentration and then to first jhana takes time. Yes. Hard to quantify, but in a relative sense, to go from first to second and second to third, is that as long an additional period of practice, or do those come almost like dominoes? From one to two is pretty easy. Um, Most people who learn the first jhana in the first two-thirds of a 10-day retreat will find number two. And almost everybody who finds number two finds number three. Uh, it's, the transition from two to three is really easy. So uh, you might go on a 10-day retreat and it's day seven before you get to the first jhana and by day nine you've got the third jhana. 
Now, you're not that skilled at it, but, you know, each time you're getting the third jhana, you're going through one and two, so you're getting more skilled at them. Might there be a book that details all that you've taught us today? This is my agent. This is, this is my agent. <laughs> I so appreciate him finding my publisher. I got it published by Shambhala. So, yeah, there's a book called uh, Right Concentration. And this guy found my publisher for me, and so you can find it, you know, everywhere. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, and there's Aya Kama's book. She doesn't have quite the detail, but they're good books. <laughs> okay, so this happens on retreat, but just about everyone has to spend most of their time uh, in other regular life other than retreat. So for people who have been accessing jhana states for some time, what's regular everyday life like. Now, you, you seem pretty happy. I'll bet you always were, but... Um, yeah, I was happy cheerful. from the get-go. Yeah, yeah, but so... Um, but in, in general, uh, what's okay. it like for people? So, you go on retreat, you learn the jhanas. You can take them home depending on how well you know them and how good your daily practice is. You take them home, you don't hit them every sitting necessarily, but you hit them often enough so that when the next time you go on retreat, you're actually really good at it. The purpose of the jhanas is to help you do your insight practice much more effectively. The purpose of insight practice is so that you see how the world actually works and you stop making stupid mistakes based on the fact that you don't see how the world actually works. So, someone who practices jhanas probably has more effective and efficient insight practice, hopefully has gained a lot more insights because of that, and therefore basically operates more in harmony with the way things are and has a less, less dukkha in their life. So that would be the, the long-term goal of jhana practice. Uh, the jhanas in and of themselves, like I said, long-term, it'll probably make you a happier person. But short-term, the whole idea is to help your insight practice. And if we've run out of questions, uh, it's 3.07. We've got a little over an hour. Oh, is there one more question behind you back there? The engineer in me loves your discussion about moving from one jhana to the next. Um, the green light is on. Yeah. Battery. Just, just hold it close to you. Anyway, I, I love, it's almost like a flow chart. Yeah. So in my practice, I, I, I enjoy doing that, but I never know whether I'm even going to get to jhana one when I sit down. I don't know that either. Thank you. That <laughs> was my question. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this, sometimes when I sit down, within a few seconds, I know, oh boy, this is really bad distraction here. This is going to be hard. And there's sometimes when I sit down, it's like, oh, yeah, this is nice. And I know the jhanas are going to be right there. Uh, but a lot of times I sit down and it's like, okay, all right, we'll just see what happens. So, yeah. On a longer retreat, it goes much more smoothly. If I sit down, you know, daily sitting, yeah, jhanas aren't as common as I would like them to be by a long shot. Okay, so we're going to take a really short break. 